If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and just stick your finger in there. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, now, as I like to do, uh, as we're in a sermon series uh, through the entire book of 1 Peter, I want to just take a brief moment to sort of cover what we covered last week, catch you all up. Last week we did chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. It was a shorter sermon based solely in the context of the book of 1 Peter. And that context was very simple. Peter was writing to a bunch of Christians that had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So what had happened was, is uh, that the Jews inside of Jerusalem and Samaria had gotten uh, upset with the Christians because they thought the Christians were uh, perverting the religion of Judaism. And so they had uh, sent people out to attack and to uh, really to torment the Christians. Uh, and the Christians, rather than staying in that one particular group, they exploded. They all went to their, their natural places where they, they lived and where they came from. And suddenly the, the face of Christianity exploded out across the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this point uh, existed from places as far as England all the way down through to the gates of Asia, including all of Europe down into the Middle East and even down into Africa, controlling the entire Mediterranean Sea. And so across the entire face of that empire, Christianity exploded onto the face of the world. And there came a guy onto the Roman throne whose name was Nero. Nero is sort of a really bad character of history. There are some things that are historically accurate. Some are sort of built around his nature. So some of you might have heard uh, the story that uh, Nero played his fiddle while Rome burned. The problem with that is that the fiddle hadn't been invented yet. Um, so he probably didn't do that. But what Nero is famous for is wanting to build things. He, was, he considered himself a prolific builder. History doesn't know if he is either a sociopath or a psychopath, but he's probably one of the two. Uh, he murdered his first wife. He murdered his second wife. Uh, then he set fire to Rome so that he could rebuild it after he went to the Senate and said, hey, let me rebuild some neighborhoods. And they said, no, you're not wasting money. So he set fire to Rome to burn it down so that he could rebuild it. He was a little bit of a cray-cray. That's, that's an actual historical definition. He was, in fact, a little bit of a cray-cray. Um, this is the guy who decided after he burnt Rome that he was going to blame it on the Christians because they were an easy scapegoat. Uh, and so he would start torturing Christians. One of the ways that he tortured Christians um, is he would dress them in the skins of animals. He would skin animals, not clean the pelts. He would dress the Christians in them with blood and goop dripping down their bodies. And then he would release those Christians into the arena and have wild animals come in and tear them apart. Okay? He's not a nice character. He dipped Christians into hot wax and then strapped them to giant stakes or trees and lit them on fire for his garden parties. He's not a nice character. He is entirely uh, an evil person, and he is the one that is really attributed to the first persecution, systematic persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. There was some persecution before, but he was the one that sort of brought it into fashion. And so that's what we sort of talked about last week as we talked about that Peter, the Apostle of Jesus, started writing this book about trials and suffering in the Christian's darkest hour. Up until this point, there had been some small uh, attacks on Christians, but nothing on this scale, nothing on an empirical 
scale and suddenly Christians were going through the darkest of times and suddenly Peter says that I need to start writing a letter to explain what's going on. And so 1 Peter chapter 1 starts with Peter introducing himself. Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what's really interesting is that word exiles. I didn't talk about it much last week because it, um, it fit more into this week's sermon. So we're going to talk a little bit about it. That's the word in Greek. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. However, it doesn't just mean exiles as in someone who is uh, separated from someone else. It also means sojourner, it means aliens, it means strangers, or it means foreigners. It, in, in essence, means someone who is not like everyone else. Tell me if that does not fit the description of Christians. You are someone who is not like anything else. In fact, that's almost a perfect description of God himself. He is altogether different from everything else. Uh, God has shared his characteristics to man, and so Christians have different values, different standards, and different goals. Uh, as a Christian, if you, have, uh, if you are asked about morality, you have different values and a different value system than someone who is not a Christian. You have different standards. Uh, God tells us in Scripture that it's not the outside that matters, but the inside that counts. And so our standard of beauty and our standard of what makes a person a person has nothing to do with their physical appearance, uh, which is completely different standards than what the world has. We have completely different goals. Our goal is to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. And so Christians are altogether entirely different. And so when Peter says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's talking to the different ones, the people who are different in these different areas. This is what he's talking about. And I want you to keep that in your mind as we move forward here. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to read along here. We're skipping over to verse 5 uh, and 6. And this is what God's word says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And what I want to focus on today, I know normally the way that I preach is exegetical, going verse by verse by verse by verse. I really want to narrow in and focus on just a couple of verses right here in the center about faith. Because I think that that is going to sort of build ourselves up and put us in the right place for the rest of this sermon series. And what I... What I want to get across to you today is that I believe that there are two really main different types of faith. There is real faith and then there is false faith. And you have to be absolutely careful that you're actually living in a true faith and not a false faith. Now, false faith itself can be sort of divided into a few categories. Um, I selected three that I think are uh, sort of the most significant. The first is inherited faith. Inherited faith is, is a false faith, not a true faith. And let me tell you what I mean by this. Um, and I'll use myself as an example because that's the best sermon illustration. You can tell. Um, an inherited faith. My father is a Christian. He became uh, a Christian at a Salvation Army altar very young in life. He then moved to Australia. Uh, he was in, uh, from England. He moved to Australia. Uh, became a Pentecostal minister, pastored a church for a very long time. Uh, my mother was a Christian her entire life. She found my father. They married. They raised my sister and me in Christianity. 
Um, I became a Christian at the age of four years old. Uh, I sung Bible songs. I knew scripture. Uh, I could repeat back my father's sermons if anyone wanted me to know, uh, wanted me to do that. Uh, everything about my existence, I was raised in the tradition of faith. However, the faith wasn't mine until uh, I reached the age of about 16 or 17 when I had a conversion experience of my own. Before that, it was inherited faith. It wasn't my faith. It was just, I just did what my parents did. I talked the way my parents talked. I acted the way my parents acted. It wasn't mine. It wasn't genuine. Uh, you find this a lot in, in uh, traditions that still baptize infants. There are people who say, yes, I've been a Christian my entire life. Uh, you know, I was baptized at six months old. And they think that's when, that's the moment that they became a Christian. Not the moment when they made a decision to say, hey, Jesus, I'm going to set my life aside and I'm going to follow you with everything that I am. And so the, the dangers of false faith can be inherited faith. It can be the faith of your parents. It could be the faith of your friends. It could be uh, any sort of someone else's faith. If it's not yours, it is inherited faith. And if it's inherited faith, then it's false faith. Second one here is shallow faith. Um, shallow faith, right? Shallow faith is the, the, the mile wide and an inch deep. You know, maybe you've had experience with these people. Maybe you've been there and it's even with your own life. You have all of this faith that looks like it's really expansive. But if you jump off the edge, really, you're in a puddle about an inch deep. Uh, I took my niece to see the movie Christopher Robin uh, with my father-in-law. Uh, just a couple of days ago, and there's a scene in that movie where Eeyore is floating down a river, and he's terrified because he thinks that he's going to go over a waterfall, and Christopher Robin says, I'm going to save you, and he jumps in expecting to dive into this massive river that is carrying Eeyore away, and he jumps in. It's up to his ankles. You've got to be careful that your faith on the outside doesn't look like a raging river, but it's really only an inch deep, and you can water cross it without getting your knees wet. There is shallow faith that people have. Jesus told a story about a man who built his house on a foundation of sand. And as soon as the winds came and the storms came, that house fell tumbling down because it wasn't built on a firm foundation. That man had a shallow faith. And shallow faith is a false faith. The third one third false faith is conditional faith. I think this is the one that most people, if they have false faith, actually have. This is the one that says, if I love God, then X, Y, and Z is never going to happen. If I love God, I'm never going to be, I'm never going to suffer tragedy. If I love God, he's on my side, he's a good God, then I'm never going to suffer trials. I'm never under, going to undergo persecution. I'm never going to get upset. All my relationships are going to work. All of my finances are going to be in place. And you put conditions upon God. Um, this is the, the person who says, uh, you know, I would believe in God, but then why does he let this happen? I believe, I would believe in God, but how would, how would things, how to address this? Some tragedy. How do you say that there is a good God if someone walks into a school with a gun and starts shooting it up? How do you say that there's a good God when planes crash? How do you say that there is a good God when there is disease rampant in the world? 
And what we do is we put these conditions on our faith, saying, I'll believe in God if all these conditions are met. But the reality of Scripture is none of those conditions are actually pertinent to whether or not God exists and it is who he says he is. There's an explanation for all that stuff which we'll get to at the end of the sermon. But conditional faith is sort of the largest pool of false faith. It's people who say, I'll believe in God when the sun is shining. However, once it starts to get cloudy, I'm going to drift away. And what we're going to read, we're going to move here to 1 Peter 1.7. With this simple concept. Trials, suffering, the bad stuff that is going to happen to you, guaranteed because you are human, reveal your faith. If you're an A-type personality and you like to write things down, please write that down. Trials reveal your faith. 1 Peter 1, 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation simply means uh, uh, revealing something that hasn't been apparent or uh, revealing knowledge or getting some sort of knowledge of something that happened. So it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the, at the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is that when you, your faith is tested, it can be seen, it can then uh, sort of be seen, but from the outside as genuine. When your faith is tested, when you go through trials, when you go through suffering, your faith can then be seen by others to either be false faith and a mile wide and an inch deep, or it can be seen as true and genuine faith. And that's what Peter is saying. And Peter would know what he's talking about. The reason is, if you want to turn there, you can. If not, I've got it on the screen, just so you know I'm not making it up. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, you read this conversation in Scripture. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is Jesus speaking to Peter, saying, Satan has said he wants to test you. He wants to put your faith to the test, and we all know what happened to Peter when his faith was put to the test. You know this story from Easter, right? Peter, the one, Lord, even if all the rest fall away, I've got your back. Peter, who says, I'm going to follow you even unto death, my Lord. Even unto death, I will follow you into the very gates of hell. I will follow you. And then Peter follows at a distance and goes off into a courtyard. And he's asked by someone, hey, do you know who this Jesus is? And he says, nope, never heard of him. My favorite, actually, is um, uh, one, of the, one of the gospels says that he is talked to by a young serving girl, right? That's one of, one of the Gospels. One of the, the three people that ask him if he knows Jesus is a young serving girl. Traditionally, that age group, she would have been about uh, seven or eight years old. So I want you to imagine Peter, the primary apostle of Jesus, the person on whom I am going to build my church, the rock. This is Peter over here. I'm going to follow you unto death, Lord. Follow you no matter what. It doesn't even matter. And a tiny little girl comes up to him. Okay, some of you are not visualizing this. <laughs> a tiny little girl comes up to him. Hey, Peter, do you know who Jesus is? Right? 
And Peter goes, nope, nope, never heard of him. That's how much his faith at that point in his life was a mile wide and an inch deep. That a small girl came up to him and said, do you know Jesus? And he said, never heard of him. But then something happened to Peter after the resurrection. Something truly amazing happened to Peter. He went from this absolute coward of an individual to a person who stood up. He was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and stood before thousands of people on the day of Pentecost, preached a sermon that included saying things like, this Jesus whom you crucified, and putting the blame onto his audience that it was their fault that Jesus died, and 3,000 people were converted through the power of his sermon that day and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And so he's transformed from this absolute coward to this miracle speaker who, listen, was willing then to die as a martyr and eventually did. Peter died by being crucified upside down in a Roman jail cell. He said uh, the, the Romans wanted to crucify him and he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of which my Lord died. Please crucify me upside down so that I do not take from the glory of the cross. Little bit of a difference, yes? Little bit of a difference. His faith transformed from a shallow faith to a true faith. In the book of James 1, chapter 2 to 4, he says, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to understand this, but your faith is actually not complete until you undergo trials. Faith is not the absence of trials. It's how you respond in them. A famous pastor, I can't remember uh, what his name was, but he said... Really, there's only three seasons in life. You've just come out of a trial, you're in the middle of a trial, or you're going into a trial. And tell me if that's not an accurate summation of how life feels sometimes. And I want you to understand this. Trials draw you closer to God. Trials draw you closer to God. Again, A-type personality, please write that down. It's important. Trials draw you closer to God. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, which is the definition of faith, believing in something you have not seen, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, uh, so, uh, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, even though you haven't seen him, even though uh, he's not with us anymore, even though uh, you may have never met him, though you've never been involved with him, even though you've never uh, physically touched him or physically seen him, you still love him, which is the definition of faith here. That we have not seen him, yet we still love him. That we've said to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to put aside myself, I'm going to put aside me and my goals and my outcomes and everything that's going to lift me up and make me better, and instead I'm going to lift up Jesus Christ, I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ, even though I've never met him uh, in person, I'm still going to do that and have faith, and that is, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, faith which is the salvation of your souls. Trials 
bring you closer to God. There is a lot of gutless preaching in today's church which tries to lollipop, rainbow, and sunshine your life. That says, if God loves you, you're never going to suffer. If God loves you, you're never going to undergo any kind of trial in your life. It is gutless and it is gospelless. And you can tell that really simply by the words of Jesus here in John 16, 33. When Jesus said, I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulations. Does it say there, in this world you may have tribulations? No. Because Jesus wasn't a fool. He wasn't silly. He knew that if you live long enough in this world, you will go through tribulations. abomination of the phrase. How many of you have heard that when you've been going through a period of your life, you've been suffering, you've been undergoing trials, undergoing tribulations, undergoing stress, anxiety, whatever it may be. How many of you have heard someone say to you this phrase trying to be encouraging to you? God won't give you any more than you can handle. This is not a biblical phrase. It is not a phrase that is found anywhere in scripture. It's a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10 13, and just so you know, I'm not making it up. I put it onto the screen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There is a difference between being tempted beyond your ability and God giving you more than you can handle. Those are two separate and completely different things. They're not interchangeable. But well-meaning people who love Jesus, love the church, love you, will we'll come up to you and, and say this ridiculous thing to you. God won't give you any more than you can handle. And here's why this is toxic. That word. You. If you are living a life of faith, it's not up to you to handle the trials up to God and you to have faith in God to do what God is going to say he's going to do. Does that make sense? That's why I find this so toxic. God won't give you more than you can handle. Yeah, no, that's, that's not true at all. Scripture doesn't say that God won't give you more than you can handle. God will allow you more than you can handle so you can learn to depend on him. God will never give you more than he can handle. And through that period of trial, through that period of suffering uh, and anxiety and whatever it is that's happening in your life, during that period of time, it is not up to you to solve your issues. It's up to you to say to God, God, I love you. God, I trust you. I have faith in you. Do what you will. I believe you will get me through this. When you don't have a faith that is a mile wide and an inch deep. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God will save us from our trials. The good news is that God saves us from our sins. Okay, I thought I would get an amen on that. 
I, I honestly did. I thought that was the moment that some of you would actually respond with an amen. The good news is God does not save us from our trials. God saves us from our sins. There we go. I don't know. I know it's hot, but I'm hotter than you, and I'm still going. So pay attention. Some of this is good stuff. The jokes are bad, but some of it is good stuff. Your faith isn't based on what you see. Your faith is based on who God is. This is my last slide. This is how we are ending this plane here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Your faith is based on the nature and character of God. That God is good, that God is faithful, that God will do what God says he's going to do. If you open up the Bible and you read any of the stories in there, it is not the story of mankind. It is the story of God being good. That God comes into human history and he reveals himself to us and says, this is who I am. You can count on me. You can trust on in me. You can uh, be faithful to me because I will be faithful to you. That is the entire story of the scriptures. It's not about you and me. It's about God and his nature, his character. The Westminster uh, Confessional says that the chief end of man is to glorify God. It's true. You and I are here on this planet for the purpose, that first and foremost purpose is to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We do that through living a life of faith saying to ourselves, you know what, I'm no longer going to be a mile wide and an inch deep. I'm actually going to have deep faith rooted deeply in Scripture, rooted in, the, in, in uh, the confession of sins and rooted in the fellowship of believers, rooted in everything that I read in Scripture. We're going to do this faith with each other as a Christian family. We're going to come together and we're going to have this faith in God. And it is God who is going to give us this faith that it's God who's going to see this faith to the end and is going to make it more than a mile wide and an inch deep. And we know that God is faithful because it's part of his nature and character. My faith is based on who God is. When the trials come, they come to reveal your character and nature. We know what God's is. It's revealed in Holy Scripture. We know that God is loving, that God is faithful, that he is kind and just and merciful. Uh, we, we know those are the natures and character of God. But what's your nature and character? When trials come to test your faith, is your faith a mile wide and an inch deep? Or is your faith truly dependent on a holy God? Is your faith in him? When trials and suffering Come. That is their purpose. God isn't sitting up in heaven at a computer playing a game of Sims. And he thinks it's funny to, to light your dishwasher on fire and see what you do. That, that's not how God operates. Sorry, if you're not a computer gamer, that doesn't make much sense to you. But if you've ever played The Sims, it makes sense. God isn't the type of person to put your sim into a pool, then delete the, the ladder out of the pool to see what you do. I'm not saying I did that, but it was funny. And too often, we, when, when bad things happen, we look at God and we think, oh, this is God being vengeful. This is God being spiteful. This is God, you know, punishing and doing this and that. And, and look, sometimes that is true. Sometimes God is punishing people for their sins. There are consequences for actions. But when 
you go through trials and suffering, most of the time, most of the time, it is going to be God testing your faith to see if you're going to fall away from him or cling to him. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. When your faith is tested, do you fall away from God or do you cling to him? Is your faith pause or is your faith based on who God is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to talk about your word. I ask you, Lord, that you be with each one of us in this place, that you reveal to us whether or not we have true faith or if we have false faith or shallow faith. I ask you, Lord, that you be with each one of us. And Lord, when the trials and suffering of our lives come, that we learn earnestly to lean into you, that we can be truly your children through the adoption of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite uh, Lenore up to give us our closing blessing.